Hi, my name is Dan Dick, the host of Church Matters. Today we'll be broadcasting part two on our topic of treaties and the church. We'll be picking up our conversation from Ovid Mercury, lawyer and an expert in constitutional law, and former national chief and currently the national spokesperson for treaties 1 to 11. And that's a land area that ranges from northeastern BC to northern Ontario. Ovid is of Cree heritage and is from Grand Rapids, Manitoba. Your background suggests that you intended to work for recognition of First Nations people. Can you remember a specific incident or a moment that sparked your passion for treaty rights? I would uh, reference two developments in my life. You have to remember, too, that uh, in this country, Parliament made a law that violated my right to retain my identity as a Cree person. So I'm talking about the Indian Act that discriminated against Indian women who married non-Indian men and losing their status and therefore their children not being, being Indian within the meaning of the Indian Act. Well, I'm one of those individuals that did not regain within law, within Canadian law, his Cree status or Indian status until I was 44 years old. Okay? But I'm also a Cree person. That I grew, that my, my first language is Cree. My culture is Cree. That means that I grew up in a traditional way through hunting, fishing, and gathering activities of my, of my community and my, and my own family. So I never ceased to be a Cree, even though Parliament said I wasn't. See, and, and I, 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 I knew that even as a child. But when I went to exercise my treaty right to hunt, which I had done before, uh, upland game birds, uh, I was stopped by a conservation officer and, and charged as a juvenile delinquent for hunting out of season. So that's an experience that informed me in terms of how important rights are to people and how important it is for people to be allowed to, to carry on with their traditional economy. Uh, and that I found it unusual that I would not be allowed to be who I am. The second incident that informed my attention on treaties is when I was a law student, reading about case law on treaties and finding out that the Supreme Court in the 1950s, this has changed since, but in 1950s, the Supreme Court has decided that Parliament could alter the treaties by legislation. And, I, and for the life of me, I could not understand why one party to a treaty could use their law to change the treaty that was made between peoples. I'm sure they would not appreciate it if I did the same, like I would change the treaty by my law. I'm sure they would not accept it. So. I said, this is wrong, that, that the Supreme Court should not have the power to, to alter the treaty. This as Parliament should not have the power to alter the treaty because treaty is nation to nation, government to government. And the only way the treaties can be changed is by political negotiations and by the meeting of the minds in the course of those negotiations. And that has not happened. There has been no mechanism, no process since since the treaties were made for us to, to come together, to come to a common understanding about the significance, the meaning, and the scope of, of the rights contained in the treaties. A nation's character is often judged by its treatment of the most vulnerable in its midst. Why does Canada have to be forced by its own court system to honor previous agreements with First Nations? I've thought about this question many times, like, why does it take so much to do the right thing? Particularly when I had been missionized and indoctrinated 
in a Christian religion to believe that the act of love is greater than hatred, right? And, and also the idea of honesty is greater than lying, that people are, are asked you know, to try to measure their life according to a standard that is defined through Christianity, through life of Christ. So I'm dealing with Christians here who are in parliament, and there's a dissonance here about their behavior in relation to my people. And I have a difficult time understanding why a Christian person cannot be honorable in their dealings with the Aboriginal people. It does not make sense to me, right? But I think part of it has to do with this idea of power, meaning that the Aboriginal people are minority. They don't determine who becomes the prime minister or the premier of a province. So In the fact, they weren't yeah, even allowed to vote. Well, they weren't even allowed to vote until the 1960s. But also, uh, I think the politicians, they want to get reelected. They want to retain power. So they, they cater to the, to the majority. Uh, and the majority's interests are not Aboriginal interests. The majority of Canadians uh, don't understand their history. Uh, and uh, when they consider Aboriginal people, you know, in contemporary times, they see them as uh, a burden to society or they regard them as interfering with development, as standing in the way of progress. So there's a negative stereotype about, about Aboriginal people in Canada. And uh, so governments play into that. I think some governments even promote that understanding or that perception of Indian people or, or Métis people or Inuit people as being backward, as people that are always complaining, right? So our, our support for our rights as a people have never reached a stage in this country where the governments are compelled to act in our best interests as a people, as a First Nations people. That's part of the problem. But I think the other thing is uh, the Canadian government assumes they are sovereign, that they have complete sovereignty on, in all of the land in Canada. And they're hoping that by ignoring our rights, that they will, they will, they will no, no one will challenge their sovereignty over time. But the reality is this. If they base their sovereignty on the treaties, even from their understanding of extinguishment of title, and they don't honor the promises made under treaty, they are, in fact, putting into question their own sovereignty over that title that they claim to be theirs now. Now, I don't agree that we extinguished our land. So they have to come to us, and we have to talk about how we're going to, how we're going to share from the, from the wealth of this country. Right? And that's, that's, the, that's, that's the talk they don't want to get involved in because um, they're afraid of their own people. They're afraid their own people will, will start feeling threatened that uh, by recognizing treaty rights to land and resources that uh, it might mean that a mining company or a, a guy holding a farm, uh, that their rights might be infringed upon by, by, the, by the true understanding of the treaty. And to add confusion to your earlier comments about how we have Christians in government and when these treaties were made, not so much now, but when these treaties were made, Canada was considered to be a Christian nation. I think it still does uh, regard itself um, as a Christian nation. And, but Canada is a young country. It's like a child. It can still be shaped. And this, is, this is, uh, has always been my belief, that if I can convince Canadians that Canada is not perfect, then they might engage in work with us in terms of perfecting it, you see. So the idea of perfecting Canada is to honor treaty obligations is one of them. The other one is to ensure that no Indian child lives in poverty. 
uh, or First Nations child or Métis child, right? And that to make sure that there is equality in society, that no one is discriminated because of their race or their religion and so on, and that the, the, the self-determination of the people, the, the right for them, themselves to govern themselves, like the, the Hutt race will understand this very well about self-determination, just like the Mennonites will understand what self-determination means. First Nations are entitled to their own self-determination. This is how we perfect society, not by, not by ignoring rights, not by dismissing people, and not by trying to suppress them, but by uplifting them, by recognizing their own collective identity, by allowing them to, you know, their right to be different, and then moving forward together, like uh, in a way in which Christianity has taught everybody, right, to walk hand in hand, right, to be good neighbors, to have love uh, between people, right. That's that's the marching we should be we should be undertaking. Not what we see right now, which is selfishness on the part of some uh, and hatred on the part of others towards our Aboriginal people. In a January twenty fourth. 2012 addressed to the Prime Minister, you said that on one hand there is a legal onus on government to live up to the treaties, but on the other hand, and here I'll quote, First Nations people should not depend on the Supreme Court of Canada to define what our rights are as a people and what these rights mean in practical ways, unquote. Can you unpack that for our listeners? What that means is this, that Parliament has the authority right now and the obligation to honor the treaties that were made with First Nations people. Parliament also has the resources, i.e. the money, from the natural resources and the wealth created in Canada to be able to meet the practical needs of people for better housing, for better education and infrastructure. That Parliament, since the formation of Canada, has done this for themselves. Like they've done, That's why you, you have cities and villages and towns across the country with infrastructure because that wealth has been shared with Canadians. Uh, but, you know, Parliament can do the same for us. And so what that, what that statement means is this, that the political will should be there automatically without the Supreme Court saying, act in favor of Indians. Like the Supreme Court shouldn't have to instruct the politicians to do the right thing. That's what I meant by that statement, that the politicians should, on their own accord, understand that reconciliation with Aboriginal people is of, of paramount importance and not something that can be deferred to the next generation. In that same address, you said many things can be accomplished through policy and through law, but nothing can defeat a personal commitment by men and women. What did you mean by that in very real and practical terms? From my own experience, I have observed that uh, what politicians tend to do is hide behind the law, their interpretation of the law, and that they don't act on their own conscience, uh, and, and that they don't act in terms of the public interest, they, and they don't act in terms of what is the right thing to do. Um, so they hide behind the law. My, my, my statement there was directed to the Prime Minister of Canada, and my intention was to shake him up a little bit and say, look, you're a human being just like I am. If you decided to do something for Aboriginal people in Canada, it'll happen because by sure will you can make it happen, right? But you also have the authority as a prime minister to make it happen, right? Oftentimes, uh, progress is made by people who challenge the status quo, uh, people who, who, who take the risk of doing the right thing. So my statement there was 
in that vein. Let's not hide behind the law uh, or the fears uh, uh, about the economy. If we need to take some massive steps to eliminate poverty, let's do it. But do it out of faith, like uh, out of personal commitment, and not necessarily because you have been forced to do it by the courts. Why are treaty rights important to non-Indigenous Canadians? One of the tenets of the treaties is peace between people. When the negotiations were undertaken, even in my community, it was done in the name of Queen Victoria in our case, but subsequent sovereigns after. But the idea was that the Queen wanted to settle the country with her people and that she needed the cooperation of my people to make it happen. And that she asked my people not to interfere with, not to molest the white people as they come into the, in the country, but to allow them to settle. This is the commitment we made, that we agreed to do that, to share the land and the resources, and that we would live in peace with the new settlers, that we would not engage in any act of violence against them. This is, a, this is the basic tenet of the treaty. And uh, even the written text of the treaty, if one is to read it, you know, you can see that the commitment was made by my society not to interfere with your society. I think when it comes to treaties, even from that point of view of maintaining peaceful coexistence between each other, it's very important to non-Aboriginal people, that, the, that uh, non-Aboriginal people, that Aboriginal people do not turn to violence in their dealings with, with society. This is very critical. Right? But the other thing is... Um, when it comes to sharing wealth, if there is a, 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 a true distribution of wealth based on the treaty, our people would not be living in poverty. We would be amongst the richest in the country. And this would be good for Canada too. In fact, the Royal Commission uh, you know, uh, has undertaken a study to show that if the governments fail to deal with the poverty of Aboriginal people right now, that it will be a greater burden to the Canadian economy as time goes on. So the time to act is now not to defer this burden to a future generation. And treaty implementation is about sharing wealth. And in fact, uh, I think recent decisions of the Supreme Court of Canada uh, have given some authority to us as a people to stop development. And it's called the, the duty to consult before any major project happens in our traditional lands. So this, the courts have come a long ways to give us some authority. Uh, and we're going to use this authority to get the politicians to pay attention and to work with us in terms of treaty implementation. But we have to do it in the context of the original treaty, meaning that we cannot do it through violence. That it has to be done in terms of dialogue, discourse, and negotiations. And that's, that's what is meant by peaceful coexistence. When I look around the world, peace treaties historically have been broken all over the place. I find it remarkable that in Canada we have relatively few examples of violent offensive action in light of well over 100 years of broken treaties? Well, there is a reason for that. And it has to do with, with the culture of the Aboriginal people themselves. When it comes to traditional values, one of the basic values is the idea of kindness, uh, to be kind to yourself, to, you, to your neighbor, right? It's a traditional understanding. that As an individual, your obligation is to be kind. And uh, so when you grow up as, an, as a Cree person or Ojibwe or, or an other Aboriginal person, you are instructed very early to be respectful to others. And that's part of our culture. When you grow up and become an, uh, an adult and you see all this, uh, um, the history about how your people have been oppressed over time by legislation and by missionization and all that, 
you have to catch yourself from getting angry because you'll be angry by that. I mean, it's only natural you'll be angry by the oppression. It'll make you angry. But then you have to remember who you are as a person, how you were trained by your own parents and by your own culture to be kind to others. So it's just kindness as part of our society that is the reason why there's been so few acts of violence in this country by Aboriginal people. I appreciate that very kind response. Another ear of mine is hearing listeners say, yes, but that's not true how I see it. That's not true what I see in the media. That's not true what I know that there is an incredibly high statistic of Aboriginal people in our prison system. Where is the kindness there? Well, the, the uh, crime rate uh, has increased in, in, in poor Aboriginal people. And initially in the 50s, and when our people started going to jail, most of the reasons were because of their poverty, where they couldn't pay for the fine. Nowadays, it's for acts of violence, uh, like what people call uh, inward violence, where people turn on each other. That's why I taught that course called Cree Perspectives and Nonviolence, because those values are still relevant. But there may have been a breakdown uh, of some of these traditional values over time. But the reason why, uh, why, why our people are, are now uh, um, overrepresented in, in, in a penitentiary is still because of their poverty. Like, that has not changed. Maybe, the, you know, the, the crimes that bring them there are different, but their inability to escape the prison is because of their poverty. Like government, corporate and church bodies are reluctant and slow to engage the issues of treaties. Can you give our listeners some concrete examples of how we as individuals can live into our treaty relationships? I'll take a mining interest. Say, for example, uh, there's a discovery somewhere in northern Manitoba of gold or nickel, and that uh, a junior company or a major company is doing, you know, the find. The way in which mining was allowed to proceed in Canada was that they didn't need the consent of our people to proceed, that all they needed was a, a, a permit or a license from the province. Uh, so a culture was created where First Nations people could be summarily dismissed by the mining companies as having no say in, in, in future development. Like in my case in Grand Rapids, when hydro development happened in the 1960s, my people were not asked for their permission. They were not consulted. The decision was made by the province just to proceed with hydro development. And in the course of doing that, they silenced the Grand Rapids. There's no more Grand Rapids in Grand Rapids, right? In fact, I've said, you know, jokingly that we should change our name to No Grand Rapids. Now they tell me they wouldn't do that in, you know, in, a, in, a, in a contemporary time, but they did it. They did do it. So now uh, I think Canadians should become more aware of how development proceeds in Aboriginal territory and that they, they should stand side by side with the Aboriginal people, not with government and not with corporations, because government and corporations have worked in collusion to extract wealth from Aboriginal territory without equal benefit to the Aboriginal people. And they've been doing this for, for decades. And but the landscape is slowly shifting because of Supreme Court decisions. And the Supreme Court has said that the governments have a duty to consult Aboriginal people, not the corporations, but the governments have a duty to consult Aboriginal people before development proceeds. But the mistakes are still being made because the proponents, i.e. the mining companies, are the ones who are doing environmental impact assessments, not the government. So it's like the chicken and the fox thing, right? 
So there's still collusion between the province and, 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 and corporations because the province is looking at this idea of economic development and jobs for people. They, they, have, they run on political pl- platforms of creating economy and creating jobs for people. That's, that's how they get elected. So this is their mantra. Uh, so to some extent, uh, we are still seen as people who are standing in the way of progress. Right? But for uh, individuals, they say uh, a person who's a farmer uh, in Morden, right? And um, he has no contact with the Aboriginal people uh, other than what he's seen in the news, and it's always very negative. Uh, so he's formed an opinion, not a, go- not a good opinion about Aboriginal people, let's say. Well, my, my challenge to those individuals who are caught in that is to re-examine their understanding with more information, but preferably with contact, with friendships, uh, because it's... it's um, it's, it's a more, more real to me as a person, uh, an opinion is more real to me as a person if it's based on an actual experience between First Nations people and non-Aboriginal people. There has to be that connection between the people themselves in order to assess feeling or an opinion, and that's missing right now. We don't have that. We don't have those French, friendships forming that allow people to uh, look at each other with with straight eyes as opposed to, you know, doubtful eyes. Should non-Indigenous persons be concerned about what may happen to them if trees are or are not finally upheld? I think they should be more concerned if they're not. Uh, and I say that not not to be disrespectful to anybody, but to highlight what, this, what the, uh, what the uh, Royal Commission of Aboriginal People has, have said, that there is a social time bomb facing Canada if there's no attention to, to the Aboriginal poverty in, in the country, and that a real investment needs to be made right now in terms of education and jobs in the Aboriginal community and, 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 and in, the, in the creation of an economy for Aboriginal people, and that this would reap many profits for Canada many rewards for Canada in terms of its own gross national product, and that the Aboriginal people uh, should not should not fear uh, that kind of action. What they should fear is that if there is no action, that the burden, the economic burden, will, will be transferred to the next generation. It'll get worse and worse. As the jails are filling up right now by, of our people, that's an example, right? The child welfare system is overrepresented by our people. That's another example of inaction by governments has led to these results for our people. And that Canadians have to hold their governments accountable and say to them, look, we can't allow this to continue. These are our neighbors, these are our friends, these are our relatives. And we want them to live in a way in which we live, which is, you know, relative, uh, not just harmony, but, you know, prosperity, where people are looking after themselves. They have their own home, and they, you know, they raise their children with with their own income. This is what we want for Aboriginal people too, right? and that's where the Canadians need to stand up with us. The Church, in broad terms, has a pretty uneven history with First Nations people. What is your call to the Church now at this time? You know, uh, my understanding of uh, of Christianity was shaped through Catholicism. Like I was raised in the Catholic Church. But because of various experiences with that religion, I'm no longer uh, in the Catholic Church. Right? But I feel like I understand some of the ideas of Christianity based on that uh, indoctrination or, or that understanding, to be polite, right, of, of the life of Christ. So I never disavow Christ. I disavow the Church. That's different. So 
My understanding is, is that he would have fought for the poor people. He would have fought against oppression and discrimination. He not only would have carried, you know, the language of love and kindness to the congregation, let's say, but he would have acted upon it. So my message is, you know, the churches, they have to go outside the scope of organization. I've always thought that organization becomes a purpose, uh, but it can also distort the real purpose so that it's important for the churches to reevaluate themselves uh, with with the idea of maybe coming up with uh, another way of not not worshiping, but another way of acting in society. Because there is there is a, a disconnect between what people are are, are being t- told in the pulpit and what they're what they're believing when they go to church and how they're acting during the, during the week. The disconnect is that there there is no continuity. It's like a fake reality, and that Christ was not a fake in my in my understanding of his life. He he would have walked my moccasins, right? Uh, he would have fit my moccasins too. I think that's what needs to. Uh, be shared with uh, not just the Mennonite Church, but uh, but the United Church, the Catholic Church, is to go beyond organization and descend into the masses and become part of that understanding of how to make Canada a better society. Uh, To go there with the understanding you want to learn something, but to contribute to the betterment of a person's life or a a group of people's life, right? That, I think, is something that Idle No More movement has tried to do because the Idle No More movement is about reconciliation. It's about engaging Aboriginal and Aboriginal people in a common concert of change, right? Uh, a positive change, not a negative one, not a violent one, but a positive change that, that would uplift the people, right? Uh, so the, the, the community, the Mennonite community, uh, as I started this conversation, I have a great respect for those people, your people, because of what they've been able to do uh, since uh, the 1870s when they came to Canada, uh, where they emerged from two reserves uh, and how they developed such a great economy right? and uh, such, a, such a wonderful life for, for, for their society, and that they did it as a collective, and they did it by helping each other. This is the message that, that we give to our people too, that we have to help each other, that we have to do things as a collective. But what we need right now is the help of others. Like, uh, we need the help of other people in society to make it happen. And that I don't think uh, enough of that kind of work has been done. I think people have been reluctant to face each other. I think uh, there's been far too much uh, hiding in organizations and, and, and not enough people getting to know each other. When I was at the University of Manitoba, we, we faced discrimination there in terms of racism. And I learned very quickly that the way to bring about change, even in that, in that context of the university, was not to tear the building down, but to recruit people within it to champion your cause. So by championing your cause, they make the change. So this is the message, that we need champions within the Minute community to make the changes we need in, in, in our lives to uplift our people. In practical ways, like uh, to eliminate the road to jail, to eliminate the road to child welfare raising of children, to eliminate the 35% dropout rate in the elementary schools, to eliminate the prejudice that exists between people, that these are the practical things uh, we need to work on. And unfortunately, you know, as much as I would like the government to do it, I don't see the government acting that way. It's an organization. It's an institution. It has no heart. Uh, It has no feelings. But people do. People have heart. 
and people have feelings. There's a popular mantra in Mennonite church circles the last few years that reads, pray for peace, act for peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like pray for change, act for change. In addition to treaties, there has been a royal commission on Aboriginal peoples. There's been the Kelowna Accord, which was signed and then scuttled. You must get weary of repeating the same message, the same educational message all the time. What gives you hope that things will change at more than an incredibly glacial pace? Well, one of my beliefs is that if the original understanding of the treaties was to be implemented, Canada would become one of the best countries in the world. So I maintain hope for a better future by upholding my understanding of the treaty, the treaties that my ancestors signed. But the other thing is this, that when I look at Canadian society uh, and I see their, uh, how they've evolved in terms of, of, of government and that they have some very good ideas like natural justice, rule of law, democracy, these are all very good ideas, but they have not been realized yet. But nonetheless, they're fruitful ideas for a better society. And, uh, and that there is, within the structure of Canada, these basic ideas that can make it a very good country. And so that gives me hope, too, that people within that organization, like non-Aboriginal people within Canada, will, will rise to the occasion and say, we want a better country than, than what we have right now. We want a united country. We want a charter of rights and freedoms that respects individual and collective rights. There are, you have individuals within Canada that, that will rise to the occasion and come and help us perfect the country. So, I mean, you have to, you have to maintain hope that it'll happen. But Christianity itself, uh, like the belief system of Christians, uh, if, it was, if, it was, uh, if it was to impact the political world in Canada, uh, I think would, would make a contribution also in terms of social justice, economic justice for everybody. Um, it's not enough to have a social conscience. You, you also have to be, behave in a way that you, you give attention to the, your social conscience so that others benefit from it, right? So it's the action that, that needs to flow from that. But also, when it comes to uh, our country, in terms of how it's evolving, I am very mindful of the fact that uh, there are 17 million people who are not, who are not white in this country. And uh, that through immigration, that the face of the country is changing all the time. Uh, and that this change will have an impact eventually on our colonizer, meaning white people, our colonizers. And that at some, at some point in time, they will be the minority in the context of, of the population. And it is my hope that when they become that minority, that the majority of the Canadians will respect minority rights. So it's important now for Canadians to show respect for minority rights because it may ultimately be in their best interest to set that cultural understanding of minority rights in place before they arrive at that point of being the minority themselves. We have to draw this to a close. Is there anything else at all that you would like to say or share with our listeners? Yeah, there's one thing I want to uh, share with, with your listeners, and uh, it's about it's this idea of options, people having options. If I had the option... I would not have become a political leader. I would have likely be a fisherman in Grand Rapids, or maybe I would have been a poet in the country. But I never had that option. Instead, I got drawn into this struggle, the political struggle of my people, you know, for justice. And, 
And so I've been involved in that for most of my life, as many of my people in my generation have. And because we have no power in society and no, no economic power, we, we became the advocates for change, but we were perceived as a negative voice for change because we were always complaining about this and complaining about that. We had no, we, the point I make is that we had no option but to complain about the injustice. But if I had the option, i.e. if there was no injustice, I think I would have done something else. So this is my message. Let's create the option that no one has to fight for justice so they can become who they prefer to be. Thank you very much for coming and talking to us today, Ovid. I'd love to talk more with you, but we do need to end our conversation here. Really appreciate you coming and tackling these questions for us. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it, too. That completes part two of our series on treaties and the church. You can listen to a full-length version of our interview online via our podcast version. Go to MennoniteChurch.ca and click on the Church Matters link under the Quick Links section on the lower right of your screen. We have over 20,000 listeners of this program. In addition, in 2012, Church Matters podcasts were downloaded nearly 6,000 times. We are grateful for each and every listener. To continue hearing Church Matters, please consider supporting this program with a gift to Mennonite Church Canada. To give, just call 1-866-888-6785 or visit MennoniteChurch.ca and click on the donate link. My name is Dan Dick and you've been listening to Church Matters. Know that you are called, equipped, and sent to be the church in the world today. Thanks for listening. As you go out from here, may the Lord go with you. The face of God shine on you every day. We are sent by God wherever we are living, salt and light as people of the way.